1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 11, and then we're going to get to work in this passage where Peter, the apostle, writing to Christians in the first century, uh, there's not been generations of believers. They're the first century of believers. So they're brand new Christians, all of them. They're all seeking to know Christ, grow in him, and yet they're suffering, and they're not suffering nearly as much as they will be suffering. This is in modern-day Turkey. They're about to go through extreme persecution at the hand of Nero. They're just beginning to taste it. And he says to them at that point, long before they really get into a time of suffering, he says these things. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout my vacation, I I tried to like at first stay away from the news and social media and that kind of thing because uh, frankly, I, I needed to rest, right? But it became impossible to stay away from news outlets and and social media because of just the issues and events that have plagued these summer months. And I found myself so discouraged by the events themselves, global terrorist attacks throughout Europe, throughout the Middle East, it just seemed like daily a new story of some life taken and some horrible thing done around the world. Innocent black men and police officers alike having their lives taken and then an election that feels more like something made for television than real life. I heard a guy recently say, if this isn't rock bottom as a society, then I'm terrified for what's next. I agree. Chaos is an apt word for what's going on. Chaos. Around the world. It's chaotic. And if the events themselves weren't discouraging enough, the way that people are responding to one another in the midst of the chaos, I find equally uh, discouraging, and it's only amplified my despondency. Chaos. And then controversy is another word that is appropriate for describing what's happening. The way people are interpreting the shootings, the election, has revealed deep uh, disagreements and division, not only in our nation and society and culture, but in the church. In the church. And so today, I think Peter's words are incredibly instructive and helpful, and for us, give us the ability to put a stake in the ground in terms of our vision as a church as to where we will stand in the midst of controversy and chaos, how we will treat one another in society and our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now, Dexter, the pastor that just passed away, when he preached at the funeral yesterday, he said, most of you all are white, but I'm going to need some help this morning. I'm used to some amens. 
In my heart today, I'm a little discouraged, and this is a tough passage. I would appreciate some feedback. If you sit there in your whiteness and your cold faces, I'm probably going to die today. Amen. All right. Bobby's white. He's from Alabama. And if he can do it, you can do it. Please, give me some feedback today. I'm not kidding. Humility and chaos and controversy. We we need humility. Let's talk about it. Peter says this in verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter's using this imagery of clothing uh, that someone, uh, you know, to, to put on yourself, this idea of humility. And he says this, clothe yourselves, all of you. Every one of us wants to live our lives in such a way that we think God is with us, that God is on our side, that he's on our team, that he's backing us up. But you know what it said, and I mentioned it last week with regards to marriage. If you are a prideful person, and we all are to some degree, okay, so let's grant that. My number one problem is pride, I promise you. But if you are given to pride, if you are enslaved to pride, if that's what you're living out of all day, every day, then you are in opposition to God. And hear me, he is in opposition to you. He's in opposition to your team. He's in opposition to your opinion. He's in opposition to your framework. That's reality. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We have these neighbors. Uh, I've lived in the same neighborhood for 13 years since we moved here to plant this church. And I've got a lot of neighbors. It's a big neighborhood. And I don't know these folks. They're just people I've observed walking their dog over the last 13 years. These people wear the exact same thing every day, husband and wife. And when I say every day, I mean every single day. Monday, same. Tuesday, yep. Saturday, uh-huh, Super Bowl Sunday, yes, every day they wear the same thing. It's a uniform, and it's identical to my boys' school uniform at their charter school, which is interesting. It's khaki pants, thank you, it's khaki pants, it's a blue shirt and or white shirt, that's it, every day, khaki shorts, khaki pants, white shirt, blue shirt. That's the only thing these people wear, but what Peter is saying to us is this, you too should have a uniform that you wear every day. Every day you should wear the exact same thing, whether it's Monday, whether it's Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, or Super Bowl Sunday, it doesn't matter. All of us in Jesus Christ should be wearing what, according to this? Humility. Same uniform, every day, black or white, whoever you are in Jesus Christ, you are to clothe yourself with humility. The church is the kingdom of the humbled. I said last week, you can't become a Christian without humility. An enormous amount, by the way. Because in order to even become a Christian, what do you have to do? You have to say to a holy God, first of all, you and I are living in pride and arrogance. We all are. I, I am, you are. This is what the Bible tells us. Selfishness. Pride is the chief sin. We live in that, and to become a Christian means you repent. That means you return or turn, and you turn towards God in humility and repentance and say, I have been living my life for myself. I no longer want to live my life for myself. I bow before you and admit that you're holy. I am not holy. I am sinful. You're altogether good. I've been living my life the wrong way. You are altogether righteous. I, I submit to your lordship because you're the king. I've been putting myself my whole life on the throne, and if I'm not careful, every day when I get out of bed, you and I, what we do is we just get on with our lordship. 
How can I make everything in my life all about me? But you see, to become a Christian, you say, no more. That life's not working for me, Lord. I want, to, I want you to be the king. I want to bow. I want to get on my knees. And I want you to become the Lord of my life. Amen? You can't become a Christian without humility. And you can't grow in Christ and be spiritually formed without humility daily. You have to wear it like a uniform every day. Because we serve a king who when he was here on planet earth, he upended everything. Everything we thought about religion, everything we thought about Judaism, everything we thought about the Messiah, he said, you've got it all wrong. He comes along and he says, hey, check this out. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. The church is a group of people who have repented and have had faith in Jesus Christ. They have bowed their life to him, and every follower of Jesus now should be living in humility. There's a passage that's being quoted all over the place right now. It's a great passage. It's being quoted on social media. It's being quoted in blogs. I'm seeing it everywhere. It's 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I think this passage is misunderstood in some ways. I think we quote it thinking of the United States, and this was written as a promise to Israel by King Solomon. So King Solomon has finished the temple, and God comes to him, and he says this to him. This is what I say to the people of God. And we're wrong if we confuse the people of God. If you think the United States is the new Israel, you're also not reading the Bible correctly. The church is the new Israel, though. We, in Jesus, are the new Israel. And so this promise, and here's the other thing I think we get wrong about this passage. One is saying, oh, this relates to the U.S. Yes, it relates to the U.S. If God's people in the United States will do this. The calling is for God's people, those who are called by his name. So the church is called. Because I'm always thinking of somebody else when it comes to repentance. Are you? Somebody else, you know what? This really, you should listen to that sermon. It's really good. Like, <laughs> why? Because you need to repent. This starts with God's people, the church. We are to repent. We are to humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, and then there may be hope for our land if God's people get serious about this. Amen? Amen. This is going to hurt. It's going to hurt some of you, but this is true. You want to make America great again? What does this passage say? You'll make America great again through first, humility, second, prayer, third, seeking the Lord, and fourth, repentance. If you want to make America great again, this is the only agenda that God will not oppose. Some of you are having a hard time saying amen because you think when I say this, I'm supporting the other candidate. Check it out. I don't like either of them at all. I don't care what theologians have said from local. I, I'm not impressed with either yet. And that offends a lot of people. I'm sorry. I'm not picking a candidate here. I'm not poking one, what I'm saying, this is truth. 
You can't ask God to bless your nation and be filled with anger, division, and pride. It doesn't work that way. We won't achieve greatness as a country through arrogance, division, fear, and anger. It will only come through humility and repentance. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Some of you are humbling yourselves under politicians and political parties and ideologies that have nothing to do with the gospel because of fear, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, and you're putting your hope there, but it will let you down. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is formed in us when we place ourselves under the mighty hand of God and no other place. He's mighty. When I say God's hand is mighty and he's my king, I now have a resource for humility. I have a resource for humility because this king is the one who comes, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew 5 says this, verses 43 through 44, if you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. You shall love your neighbor and you'll hate your enemy. That's what, that's what our hearts tell us. Love your neighbor, people that are easy, and I'm going to define neighbor as everyone who's like me. That's how the Israelites of, of this day were defining neighbor. You know that, right? If you're a good Jew and you're obeying the law the way I interpret it, then I love you, my neighbor. But if you're my enemy, I hate you, and I'll apply another verse where it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus comes along and says, you've got it all wrong. Instead, you're, you're supposed to see everyone as your neighbor, not just the people living next door to you that look just like you. Everyone is your neighbor, and not only that, I'm going to take it up a notch. Even if they are your enemy and they hate your guts, you're to love them and to pray for them. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. And I'm not sure you are either, so I'm not even going to waste time on trying to convince you to love your enemies. I'm just going to ask you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because there's too much division right now between brothers and sisters in Christ. I am on a Facebook page that is nothing less than pastors and elders of local churches. No one else is allowed on the, on the list. There's 1,500 people. Every time somebody posts anything, there's this little dialogue, and it's friendly at first, and it usually devolves into somebody being, being called a bigot or a homophobe, or there's something, something gets thrown out eventually where it's just nothing but division, okay? And that's where we are, even among Christians. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. I want to be called a son of God. I don't want to get to the kingdom and be told like, you know what, <laughs> we got to talk. I want Jesus, when he sees me, to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You blew it, Scott, you were a, and I know that. But I want to hear his voice say, well done, and you're, you're my son, you're my daughter, you do too. Well, that's about being a peacemaker then. And we don't preach salvation by works here, totally the opposite, but grace leads us to be gracious. I'm going to get into some details. How do we clothe ourselves with humility on the issue of the shootings and racial divisions that exist in our church? 
it's, this is hard, but we're going there. And because New Valley is predominantly white, and as I look around the room, we're almost entirely white in this service this morning, and that pains me. I beg that stops. I'm going to start to speak to humbling ourselves towards our black and brown brothers and sisters. Now, in choosing this place to start, I've got fear of being misunderstood, and you're not going to hear me because you're going to go, yeah, but what if you start talking about black, then what about blue, blue lives, and what about this, and it's complex, and what about just for a minute, would you let me start here knowing that I'm not pitting groups here, okay? All of us have to humble ourselves towards one another, everybody, black and white. But because we're almost 100% white here in this room, I'm starting here. You understand? How can we be peacemakers? How can we love our enemies? How can we be empathetic towards one another, our brothers and sisters? I was fortunate enough to be raised by a mom and a dad where I can honestly say, and this is truly, I've thought about this all week, I don't remember ever hearing a racist or bigoted comment from my mother or my father. I was never told, don't be friends with that Jewish kid. Don't be friends with that black kid. Uh, Quite the opposite. Always encouraged. My dad was a champion for civil rights in his university, and he constantly was working for, uh, for minority students to have access that he didn't think they had. And I'm proud of that legacy. And that comes on the heels of my mother's father that was such a racist, that, and I never met him, uh, but I hear stories that, that was unbelievable. And the fact that it stopped with her somehow by God's grace is amazing to me. I never, ever heard her say a bigoted thing once. And in spite of that fact, myself and I think most white folks have been largely ignorant. I know I have been. I have been largely ignorant and definitely silent on the issues regarding the divisions that are so clear to me now that I see. And what's changed my mind and led me to humbling myself before African-American friends is this. It's been through friendship. It's been through intentional friendship and hearing people, knowing people, and then hearing their story and their voice and understanding. My experience has been different from yours, and that's changed my heart. Last year, I began to intentionally ask my black friends, mainly pastors, a few questions. We go out to lunch, and I had an agenda. And that agenda was, would you please share with me your heart regarding your experience? I just want to hear And at first, to be honest, they didn't want to talk about it. It's kind of like, you know, do you really want to hear this? Like, you know, it's kind of safe where we are. Do you really want to hear what I have to say? And what I heard is how hard it is. Now, three of these pastors, I consider three of the very best pastors in our church, in in our city. If any of you leave our church, I would encourage you to go to their churches. I would sit under each one of their ministry. One is an associate pastor. He is a pastor at a largely white church, almost entirely. And another brother is a, is a senior pastor of a church that is also almost entirely white. And another brother is a senior pastor of a church that's about 50-50. And as I've talked to them and their spouses and heard their stories, here are the type of things I've heard. And first of all, all three are the, among the best pastors in town. They pastor predominantly white people, and that's not an easy thing. And and they do so with such grace. And when we talk, they never bring up race. This is not their agenda. The gospel is always their agenda. I ask them, share with me. One of them finished as a top-tier student at an Ivy League school, one of the premier universities in the United States. Graduated very, very tops of his class. And yet, 
even though he also graduated top of his seminary class and, and is like a very thoughtful, brilliant person, when he was engaged to his wife, a, a, a white Christian mentor came up to her and said, I really want to warn you about marrying a black man. That actually happened. There have been difficulty with the police. Uh, when one of my brothers, two of the brothers grew up in Los Angeles, one of them grew up in New York City. Uh, the two that grew up in L.A., they literally grew up on the south side, like straight out of Compton. It may not have literally been Compton, but just totally that area, south L.A., and it was hard. These were good kids. These were kids trying to get out of the city. They were athletes, they were good students, and they were trying to get out. But in each time, throughout their youth, when they were driving, there were multiple times they were pulled over, pulled out of the car, and often handcuffed simply for being black and driving their neighborhood. At night, people avoid them on the street, walk across the street. One brother shared a story how even though he was an honors student, he walked into one of his classes in high school, an honors class, the teacher looked at him and said, I don't think you're in the right class. Just for being black. He was in the right class. Another friend of mine, not a pastor, was recently pulled over right here in this part of the valley and the only cause and justification that he was told for being pulled over was he wanted, the police officer wanted to check to make sure that the car he was driving, a luxury car, was actually his. Don't you think that begins to shape you after a while? United States Senator Tim Scott, he's a conservative Republican from South Carolina. That's not unique, is it? A conservative Republican from South Carolina, big deal. But this guy, Tim Scott, is a conservative, really conservative Republican from South Carolina, and he's black. Now, that's unique. In fact, it's really unique. He's the only one in the U.S. Senate, for sure, and very few in, in, in the entire Congress. He recently addressed all of Congress saying this, this has been my experience, a United States senator. I shuddered when I heard Eric Garner say, I can't breathe. I wept when I watched Walter Scott turn and run away and get shot and killed. And I broke when I heard the four-year-old daughter of Philando Castile's girlfriend tell her mother, it's okay, I'm right here with you. In the course of one year, I've been stopped seven times by law enforcement officers in Washington, D.C. Not four, not five, not six, but seven times in one year as an elected official. Was I speeding? Sometimes, yes. But the vast majority of the times I was pulled over for nothing more than driving a new car in the wrong neighborhood or some other reason just as trivial. He goes on. It's easy to identify us U.S. senators. We have these pins. It opens doors everywhere we go. I recall walking into an office building just last year after being here for five years, and the officer looked at me with a little attitude and said, the pen I know, you I don't. Show me your ID. These type of things just don't happen to me. Never. I've been pulled over for speeding, running red lights, a number of other things. I've done really stupid things in my youth in automobiles, and I've been pulled over, and I've always been super respectful for police because I'm smart. And I've always received nothing but respect back, always. I've never, if my heart rate has risen at all, it's only because I don't want to pay a ticket. I don't fear going to jail. I don't fear getting handcuffed. I don't fear a gun coming out. I don't fear any of that. Same with my boys. One of my boys has his license. The other has his permit. I don't fear for them. 
And I used to not fear for anybody else either. But now, in light of all the stories I've heard from my friends and the news stuff that's just cascaded in, I now fear for my relatives, because I have relatives that are black, and I fear for my friends whose children drive on the streets because of what is going on. I just don't have examples like this in my own life. I don't have stories, but if you'll listen and you'll be humble and ask, you will hear, hear stories from friends and loved ones of yours that's not been your experience. Now, the question I have, and this is our vision, you need to know, this is the vision of New Daly Church. Can we have more empathy than analysis? Because usually what we do in the white evangelical church, we hear stories like this about death by police officer or whatever, like we go into an anal- analytical mode. I do and you do. Yeah, well, it's complex, and there's more black-on-black death anyway, and, and they're fatherless, and there's all these problems in the home, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. But would you do that at a family friend's funeral? If somebody's father's just died, and you go to their funeral, and, and you walk up there, and, and all these people are crying, you probably wouldn't walk in with hands folded and go, I really don't fully understand why you're crying, because he knew he had heart disease in his family, and he ate at McDonald's every week. Would you do that? You would never walk into a funeral where people are weeping and go, I don't really understand all the big hubbub here. Why is everybody crying? Because like, hey, the guy was overweight. and He didn't take care of himself. This is what happens. You don't do that. You weep with those who weep. You mourn with those who are mourning. You give empathy instead of analysis. Were some of those things true? Perhaps. But that's not the time or the place. A little empathy and a little A little compassion would go a long, long way. Church, I'm asking you, can we have more empathy than analysis? Can we have more empathy than analysis? Can we have more tears than judgment? (laughs) Can we have more tears than judgment, church? Can we have compassion in the midst of complexity? Thank you. Romans 12 says this, bless those who persecute you. I'm not asking you to do that today. We're not ready for that. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. I am asking you to do this. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. When the shootings in early June took place, I found myself weeping, thinking of the fear my black brothers and sisters go through. My friends who I know are so exhausted. And as I've talked to my black friends, this is what I hear. We're just tired and angry. These aren't people that hate white people. These are not the ones uh, in the streets picking up guns, trying to, you know, these are the patient ones. These are the Christians that pastor largely white churches that when they go and sit with people and cry over dead ones and sick ones and pray in the hospital, it's usually a black pastor sitting with a white congregant, usually. These are people who love white people and they're just saying we're tired and we're angry and we don't understand and we don't want this for our kids and we're tired of being misunderstood. We give up a lot to be pastors and and members of largely white churches, but we do so because we love the gospel, we love the truth, we love the teaching we're hearing. But man, it's hard. 
and we analyze, we judge, and we look for anecdotes that disprove. So we're on vacation, and I, I literally found myself weeping in our condos. I, I'm hearing about these shootings, thinking of how this affects my friends. And then only hours later, I'm weeping with the rest of the nation because there are five police officers dead. Five brave people who are there protecting protesters, who are protesting against their, their profession. Brave people. Now we need a little empathy for blue in this conversation. Like people who aren't running away from the fire when it goes down, they're running towards it. I wept over that. I hope you did too. And I was moved to tears hearing that police chief from Dallas, who's black and represents the police force in Dallas, with such eloquent words and such beautiful, tasteful words and leadership. So impressed with that man. And I've heard he loves Jesus Christ. The evangelical white church, we have a tendency to go into analytical mode instead of weeping. We say all these things, but it's time, friends. It's time for more empathy than it is analysis. We're too divided, and the gospel says it's not okay. Jesus says it's not okay. You're the peacemakers of this world, not the, anal you know, the analytic ones. All the police officers I know personally are good people, men and women alike. There, there's, Andy Lee is a police officer and a member of this church and a great one. Andy was a, a, an army chaplain for many years and he's got like multiple degrees. He could have done anything he wanted and he chose to be a police officer, an underpaid, uh, very dangerous job right here in Tempe. And it's hard enough just being a cop before all this went down. Think about this. It's always been hard being a police officer because here's why. You and I, when we turn on the news, we hear the worst of the worst of the worst stories on the news every night. It's like, why do we even listen? It's like these stories of somebody's killed their whole family or whatever, and, and I go, oh, that's awful. But the next story is about the Cardinals, and then I forget about it. But you know who doesn't forget about it? Are the first responders who walk into situations just like that, where they walk in and find some horrific scene, and no one's been there to clean it up and sanitize it. They're the first responder. They're the one in the emergency. They're the one who's coming in, the police officer or the fire department or whatever. They're the ones to first show up, and no one's there necessarily to care for them. Think about that. The stress, the post-traumatic stress. And then they're supposed to be able to go home and just kind of put that away and be with their wife or their husband and hang out with their kids and be a normal home person. Well, how do you do that? So we need some empathy for our first responders, and we need to be praying for our brother, Andy Lee, and others, and we need to come around them. I love that some of your guys' response in the midst of this was literally one of our members took a meal and a bunch of food over to a local uh, police station, substation, just said, thank you, we love you, we're praying for you. That's beautiful. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, we're not done yet, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humility is formed in us when we cast all of our anxiety on him because he cares for us. You want to be humble, you gotta start casting your fear away from you and towards the one that can handle it. Fear is a powerful force. Do you hear me? Fear is an incredibly formative, powerful 
force. It forms you. And either the Holy Spirit is forming or shaping you or something else is. And right now, friends, I think fear is the thing that is forming our people as a nation. As we're approaching the election, I don't hear a lot of faith in any politician. I hear fear about the other one. I'm voting for so-and-so because I'm terrified of the other person. That's what I hear primarily. Fear causes me to do all kinds of things I should not do. When I'm really anxious, I am short with my wife, my kids, with you, with anybody. When I'm filled with fear and anxiety, I'm filled with worry, and I usually say things I should not, and I don't do things that I ought to do. Fear is a horrible thing. And Peter comes along and says, cast all of your cares on him. Do you ever go fishing, casting? You're throwing the lure away from you. It means to chuck, to throw, to cast. To get this away from you and put it on the only person that can handle it. And it's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because he alone has the dominion and the concern and care to handle it. Amen? He's alone can handle your fear and your anxiety. But some of you, I see you on social media, I see your behavior, and what you're doing is you're casting your care and your anxiety on one of these two (laughs) uh, people that are up for election, expecting them to be able to handle, because you're so fearful of the other one, you're, well, if this one gets in, at least this won't happen. Trust me, it's not enough. There's one alone who has the dominion and the power for whom, and I'm not saying politics doesn't matter and the election doesn't matter. I'm not saying just check out, but I am saying this. If you're living in fear, you're going to lack the humility you need to honor this Father and Son and Holy Spirit that we say we worship. He cares for us. He loves us. He can handle it. Throw your fear onto Him. Quit feeding your fear, I beg you. Through cable news, breaking news report, boom. Well, it's the same thing you told me five minutes ago. We have breaking news over and over. Guess what that does to me? Makes me fearful, but guess what also it does to me? It makes me keep watching. I have relatives that I don't think leave the house because of the breaking news. They're stuck in this cycle of like breaking news. And it could be from the left or the right. It doesn't matter. It's all about fear to keep you watching. Fear, social media outlets. Why do you keep feeding yourself with your fear? I'm going to find another article that already raises my temperature of my fear. I've already got 5,000 I've read and liked on Facebook. I'm going to go find five more to repeat and tell everyone this is really making me scared. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Finally, thank goodness, right? There's hope in this. There's so much hope. We don't have to live in fear. And we cannot live in division. 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11 says this, and after you have suffered a little while. Sounds like other parts of the Bible that talk about this brief and momentary suffering. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're going to suffer. That's what he's saying to these people uh, that he's writing to. And if he were writing to us, I think he might say the same things. 
You are suffering, you're in chaos, you're in controversy, but first of all, you're not alone. Around the world, people who love Jesus are suffering. That's true, more than ever, and actually they're being martyred. We're just suffering a scary election. People in the Middle East are dying for their faith. People in Europe are having their throats slit. We can handle a little fear and anxiety. Can we not, brothers and sisters? And here, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory will himself restore. That means he's going to restore everything back to the way it ought to be under his dominion, under his kingship. And that's what's coming. And here's the thing. Jesus kept talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And the kingdom is like this. And these people will be in the kingdom and other people will not. And I've got news for you. If you don't love diversity, you're going to hate the kingdom of God. If you don't love diversity of peoples, you're going to despise heaven and the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is made up of every trunk, tribe, nation, and people group, and we're all going to be together forever. And so why we keep segregating ourselves uh, from one another now when we're going to spend eternity with people that weren't like us is, is beyond me. And it's time for us as a church to pray that that ceases at New Valley, it ceases in the body of Christ in Phoenix, and that we become a more diverse group because if you don't like diversity now, you're going to have a hard time for eternity. God is calling us to humility. And this pastor told us yesterday some stuff He said things like this, this pastor that died right after us burying this little girl. He said, there's one thing that God gets really right. There's many more, like everything. But he goes, the Lord still is really good at life and death. And he's got that in his hand. And he said, I believe that with all my heart. And he said things like this, none of us go to the Father without the Father calling you home. He knew that. And the Lord knows the day and the hour of your going to be with him, but you don't. Look, when I stood with this guy yesterday, holding his hand, praying, talking to him, exchanging phone numbers, it never crossed my mind that that would be the last time I would ever see him. Just yesterday afternoon. Not even 24 hours. Life's too short, friends, to be living in anger, and fear, and, and not loving people, it's too short. It is time for us to live in humility and in love and being the peacemakers that God has called us to. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your table now, a table that represents your sacrifice for us, that we may be one that we may be one. We will, you told us that we will be known by, as your children for our love for one another. That if we would love one another, serve one another, wash one another's feet, sacrifice for one another, we would be known as those who love and that we would be your children by love, not division, not discrimination, not analysis, but love and care and concern. God, give us a heart of compassion towards one another. And may your table be for that, this very powerful thing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.